This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 12 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with Connie Birdsell about what to do when a meeting with clients is not going well. The first thing is to just not get defensive. The other thing, you just need to go through the meeting quicker. (laughs) Here's Debbie Millman. Close your eyes and think about the visual identities of these brands. Starbucks, Delta, Samsung. If you can picture those brands in your mind's eye, the color, the typeface, the logo, that means their designers have done an extraordinary job. Connie Burtzel had a big hand in designing all of them and many others. She's a senior partner and the global creative director who leads the design practice at Lippincott, the creative consultancy. She joins me now to talk about her long career in branding and about designing some of the most successful brand identities of our time. Connie Burtzel, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you. Connie, I understand you have a poster you keep framed in your house in upstate New York, which was a gift from your sister to remind you of where you came from. It states, you can take the girl out of Iowa, but you can never take Iowa out of the girl. I read that you believe that it sums up who you are and how you approach life and how you've lived your life so far. Is that true? It's pretty true. In what way? What is an Iowan way to live? Well, I think for me, the Iowan way to live was small town, very, very, very close set of family friends. My parents had a farm that we shared with three other families. So there were probably, well, I'm going to get this wrong, but maybe 15, 16 kids between all the families, a lot of Catholic in Iowa. And we would spend the weekends on this farm where we, you know, had our vegetable gardens, we had horses, we just camped out. Did you tend to the animals? We did. I had a wonderful horse back in the day, which is not like a fancy horse, but a horse that I loved. And it was just an incredible way to grow up. But we were also in a university town. So we had all of the wonderful things that what I thought people in big cities had, like you could go to the theater and you could go to the ballet and you could see all these things that were coming through to the University um, Iowa State in Ames, Iowa. So I always felt like I had the best of all worlds there and great education. And the roots were, you know, kind of very solid. And leaving that was hard. But I also wanted to leave. And I wanted to be in New York since being very small, but I like to be reminded of where I came from. So, I read that your dad was a doctor and loved to build beautiful model boats and seems to have instilled a creative spirit in you. He was a doctor, but oddly, I think he became a doctor more because that's what his mom wanted him to be. I think if he could have been anything in his life, you know, he was a depression baby. So back in those days, you kind of we're very focused on your career, not that people aren't focused on their careers today, but, you know, making a living and being able to provide was very important. But I think he would have done one of two things. He would have been an artist. He loved 
also to do watercolors. And I used to just sit and watch him paint and then build these boats. These model boats were spectacular, and I probably have about 10 of them. Or he would have been a golfer. <laughs> really? <laughs> he loved to golf. He also so was he, a he, scratch golfer. So. He lived on a farm, so he must have been some sort of farmer. He was a doctor and an athlete. The farm was something that we had with these four families together, and we lived in town, but the farm was where we spent, like, the weekends. So it was, it was just a really great place to grow up. You started dancing at a very young age. I understand you started ballet lessons at four and spent hundreds of hours performing and practicing. Were you hoping to be a professional ballet dancer when you grew up? I think probably every little girl who studies ballet for some period of time thinks, yes, I'm going to be that person on the stage (laughs) in New York at Lincoln Center. So, yes, I think I had a dream that that would be, like, amazing. As I got older and realized that that was really something that was extraordinary and very few people actually were able to do that, I started to think about what are the other things that sort of are sideways to this kind of dance career that might be possibilities for me. I understand you also love photography, and you've said that you love to photograph ballerinas in the studio that you danced in and then make silkscreen prints for them. Is it true that you dreamt of designing the cover for one of your yearly dance programs? Well, I don't know if I dreamt that that would be wonderful, but I always did them. Oh, you did them. (laughs) So they were pretty corny. I have all of them. making. Um, Oh, you still have them? I do. Oh, how fabulous. They're pretty silly, but I... You know, that was like the early days, right? Your first design project. Exactly. Your education has a fascinating arc. You started at the University of Colorado in Boulder studying ballet and hoping to ski as much as possible. But it was a bad year for snow, I, I read, and you got really homesick. Was that the first time you'd left home? It was the first time I had left home for that long period of time. I did some summer camps, but I was always homesick. I always missed my my family. I missed our pets. <laughs> you know, like leaving them, I would cry every time I would leave the pets. So, How did you ultimately overcome your, your sadness at being away from home? It took a long time, and I did go back. So I did the University of Colorado for a year, and then I transferred back to the University of Iowa, which is in Iowa City. And that's on, where you studied theater and, and dance I and art, studied right? studied theater, dance, and art there. And I actually had a really interesting class, and that was probably the turning point because I had a teacher who just did a class that was all about ideas, and then you would present them. One project was to do something with light, and I did some sort of interesting theater thing, of course, um, having to do with lights. And then the next class was about something else, and very creative kind of opportunities to do presentations. And... When I got done with that class, my instructor said, you know, you might want to think about the Kansas City Art Institute, which when I started thinking about asking my parents if I could transfer yet again. This um, would have been the third time? Oh, the third time. Okay. I was thinking, oh, they're not going to be too keen on this. But they were pretty open. I went to summer school, and I took a class in typography. 
And I read that at this point, you didn't even know what being a graphic designer was or that people had careers designing logos and packaging. Had no idea. So what made you decide to take the class in typography? Just, it looked interesting. All because of this teacher's encouragement. One teacher. Yeah, I kind of have everything about sort of where I kind of went from there was really all because of this one really amazing person that kind of pushed me in the right direction. So... It was the beginning of you being a designer. Right. Oh, and just an aside, but Victor Papanup was there, and he was kind of the design for the third world guy. And so we had some really interesting um, visiting professors and people that would come and speak at the school. And it just opened, uh, not just in graphic design, but opened my eyes to just all the different types of careers there are within design. And it was a good place. After graduating, you moved to Houston, Texas, and your first job was working at an architecture firm called Caudle, Rowlett, and Scott? Correct. <laughs> that was a tough, <laughs> tough pronunciation. No. What did you do there? Well, I was really a graphic designer, but they had a group, a small studio, and the guy that was leading it was a Cranbrook graduate, recent Cranbrook graduate, and he was building a design support project that would be doing, you know, architectural signage and all sorts of things to support the architecture projects. And these guys did these big stadium projects, and then they did projects in um, Saudi Arabia and some of the places that were completely exotic to me. Didn't stay there very long, but great experience. And then, of course, I learned about Cranbrook. So that was and so the, he planted the seed planted about that Cranbrook. Seed. <laughs> so you decided to go back to graduate school. In 1981, you were accepted to Cranbrook Academy of Art in Michigan, which is one of the best art and design schools in the country, if not the world. You must have had an amazing portfolio to get into Cranbrook. You know, honestly, when I think back of what was in that portfolio, wow. <laughs> really? Yeah. But yet you got in. I got in. I had some good pieces from the, I think from the Kansas City Art Institute that were probably, you know, the things that helped sort of push it over the edge. But, you know, it was pretty minimal. What was your experience at Cranbrook like, as expressive and experimental as the mythology? Yes. What was the craziest thing you did? Well, we did a lot of crazy things at Cranbrook. But I took a class that was just all about kind of painting with type. And that was nuts. And the assignment was to pick a label from a food product. So I picked mayonnaise, the Hellman's mayonnaise. And it ended up being this smear, if you will, of this type that you literally back in the day, because we didn't have computers back then, there's students listening to this. So I'm sure they're like, really? <laughs> we had to cut each little letter out by hand and glue it. Yeah. And I must have glued like 100,000 kind of little letters to make that smear look. And it, it was fun. After you graduated, you finally, at long last, moved to New York City. And I understand that this was a dream that you had from the time you were a very, very little girl. And I read that when you first flew into New York, you were leaning out of the window of the plane and felt the amazing thrill of seeing the Statue of Liberty. And you still feel your heart flutter whenever you return home from trips leaving New York. Yeah, it's really true. When that trip happened from school, and we flew in and we curved around the Statue of Liberty. It was, it was really a, 
incredible moment. I always wanted to see it and had an amazing three or four days. It was during the design week. All the schools would come to New York, and you'd meet a lot of people, and you'd go to a lot of studios, and it was just thrilling, frankly. Your first job in New York City was as a junior designer at Anspach, Grossman, and Portugal, where you worked for Ken Love and Jean Grossman. And I understand that when you first met Jean Grossman, you were terrified of him. Yeah. Why? Probably still am. (laughs) That's, like, hard to admit. But How come? um, Why is that? Jean was like a second graduate school. He was incredibly demanding. He had a way of working where he would bring you a sketch, and then he would ask you to work up the sketch, and it felt impossible to work up his sketches. They were... Like, you couldn't make the type do what he was trying to do with the type. And you try and you try. And then you try to wander off and do something a little bit maybe on your own. And then he would walk by and he'd say, where is my sketch? (laughs) And we would all, like, we all had drawers, like, right underneath our drawing boards. And we would keep all of his sketches there so that we could rapidly pull it out (laughs) and And say, see, I couldn't make it happen. I couldn't do that. From not having a notion as to what design was just a few years back, going to work at AGP must have felt like going to Mars. Back in the day, it was one of the places where people really wanted to work. Yes. And the fact that I got hired there was huge. And I'd seen, you know, all of their beautiful compendiums and they did gorgeous work. But the whole idea after coming from Cranbrook that I would end up in a commercial design Certainly very corporate. environment and very corporate was not really kind of at the top of my list of places that I wanted to be. And I was like, well, I I need this job. I'm going to stay here like maybe three, five months, and then I'll go find something else, right? Five Five years years later. later. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I was, you know, really um, amazed at, first of all, everything that I was learning and all the opportunities. But the big companies that we were getting to work for and the complexities and And sort of thinking through design more in a systems approach was not something that that I really did at Cranbrook. You know, at Cranbrook, we experimented. We tried all sorts of interesting techniques and ways of thinking, but they were really very conceptual and and not very related to the real world. I'm sure Kathy would be disappointed that I'm saying that, but it felt very self-indulgent in a way. And then this whole other world got opened up to me where it was like, oh, there are clients out there and they actually have challenges and we can actually help them come up with solutions that, you know, help them do their business better, communicate better. And it was uh, very interesting. And I stayed five years, finally got the courage to go someplace else, which, of course, was lip and cut. Um, very small back in the day, Lippincott had kind of shrunk from its early days to I think there were probably thirty or forty people there, and the studio was very small. There were probably seven full-time designers, and that was very different—a little bit different than AGP. And there was nobody. There was very few people above me, so I could see a potential path, and that's something to think about, I suppose, for young people as they're, you know, exploring things to try a lot of things, but also picking that particular place at that particular time, uh, people thought I was nuts because it really didn't have the reputation that Anspach Grossman in Portugal had and some of the other studios at the time in the city. But it 
it offered the potential for growth that I was looking for. Connie, you've been at Lippincott now nearly 30 years, three decades. And you've said that people constantly ask you how it is that you've been able to stay in one place for so long. And you've said that going to Lippincott was like finding a real fit in a place where you've had unlimited ability to shape your career and work on amazing brands with amazing colleagues. So let's talk about your career at Lippincott. You've said that you describe your role now as being the chief cheerleader (laughs) and that your job is to build a world-class design practice that is much broader in how we think about brand expression now. How has this practice, from your perspective, changed the most? I mean, you've been working in branding now 35 years. Long time. So the practice has changed in how we engage in a project and at the time that we engage in a project. So... Early days at Lippincott, I would say there was more of a pass-off. Like, the strategy would get developed, the design team would then get a pass-off from strategy, and then we would go do a lot of execution. Today, we're very involved in the strategy development. We play a large role, I think, in helping to shape the potential for what the project solution could be. And we focus a lot more on experience than we have in the past. And so when you start to think about brand beyond just the assets, if you will, the names, the logos, the the elements in the visual toolkit, it really broadens the potential. So if you're designing an experience, then you can even start to think about, hey, do we even have the right things in the toolkit? And I see that a lot. Like people are like, well, we did this design program but we don't really have the actual things that the client needs to be able to stand out and differentiate. Yes, we have them. We have all the sort of standard things, but we haven't really thought about uniquely the content and the experience and how people are going to be interacting with the brand, which can lead you to an entirely different set of things that you're developing. So voice, for instance, has become much more important and emotion and just thinking beyond the sort of the traditional things that we've done. Um, And the backgrounds of the people on the teams have changed, too. In what way? So I think early on, we would very much, we're very focused on what I would, hate to use the word print, but very print kind of centric people, people who had solid design backgrounds, you know, good educations. We're still interested in that. It's still really important as a part of everything that we do. But now we are looking for people who have a little bit more user experience background, who maybe approach design slightly more from a strategic standpoint, people that voice and writers, and, you know, we've broadened the kind of the skill set. One of the things that I am truly um, demoralized by is how... um, One of the designs that I might have had a part in creating looks on someplace like Amazon and this beautiful package design that I might have agonized over and looked at every single pixel in every single perspective ends up looking like an icon that's about a half inch wide. And that destroys me. (laughs) How do you contend with that kind of of, of presentation of your work these days? Well, I think that's part of it, right? The world is 
just changing. So what's important as far as representing the brand, it might not be the package anymore, right? It might be a smaller subset of elements that are, you know, the thing that need to represent it. So it's something that we're constantly evaluating and looking at. And where is our work actually seen? Because you're right, it's seen on Amazon. It's rare that anybody goes to the grocery store anymore even, right? You order Blue Apron and your dinner arrives and you have to cook it. But it's a very different experience that we all have with the world. So thinking about how design is changing to, to work more effectively in these new way of living is something that we're constantly kind of trying to stay ahead of. I want to get some behind-the-scenes, under-the-hood commentary about some of the projects that you've played a a big part in. I know you love working on airline redesigns. Let's talk about how you went about redesigning the Delta airline brand. So that project was probably the most, like, exciting thing because I had worked on Continental Airlines maybe 13 years previous to Delta, and then we hadn't had an airline in the studio since. We tried very hard to pitch airlines, but we never got one. And when we finally got that Delta project, I felt so ready for that moment. I was older. I was more experienced. I had just in my mind just how we were going to go about it. And they actually had been working with many firms. Like we went down and visited the woman who was leading the program and she had a stack on her desk 12 inches deep of new program designs, logos and things that the agency had done and other people and no one had successfully been able to sell anything through. Why? Why? I think they just weren't linking it to the strategy in a way that was understandable for their management. Why was Delta looking to change the brand at that time? Oftentimes, it's usually a change in the way the brand wants to be perceived or a new CEO. So Delta had just come out of Chapter 11 or was just about ready to come out of Chapter 11. So which is a, if you're not familiar with Chapter 11, it's a reorganization, right? So um, that's due to financial due to financial instability could often lead to bankruptcy. Yeah. And they had developed Song, which was a small, more sort of regional airline, and they were merging Song into Delta, which were two incredibly different cultures. Song was very much like a, an entrepreneurial group of young people. All the flight attendants were in their early twenties, being kind of moved into Delta, where the average age of a flight attendant was fifty. And up, which is kind of hard to believe back then. So they were looking to bring these two things together. They were looking to come out of Chapter 11. And they were looking at this program as an opportunity to just ask the world to reconsider Delta again as their airline of choice. You know, that was like 2007. And if you don't travel a lot, 2007 was probably one of the lowest points in airline history where there just was no respect between people who were getting on the planes, the people who were working for the airlines. It was just a very difficult time. So actually bringing some manners back (laughs) was something that we focused on. Like, how can we, you know, start to treat our customers like, you know, they're important to us. The identity itself, you know, it's a delta. So the idea was to just make it 
look as tight and clean and professional as possible. And it was a very simple design. And that, I think, was the beauty in it. Doing something that was so clean allowed them to build a lot of kind of program elements around it that had just a lot more more life. And this thing has like longevity because it's it wasn't trying too hard. It was really just a very simple, clean design. Do you think that that's why the previous designs that other agencies had done were unsuccessful? I think that the current identity that they had, I don't know if anybody remembers, it was sort of like a wavy flag tail thing, like the American flag, but it looked like a painting. It was very complex. It was very expensive to reproduce. The pilots actually saw something in it that was very negative to them, and they were happy to see it go. And that's often one of the most important audiences in a, in an airline program are the pilots. They have a lot of power. If they don't like your design, then it won't wow, go forward. Wow, I had no idea. Yeah, it's a really interesting group. Well, it's um, the same way with fast food. I, when I and, and very similar in terms of the entry point into the project when I was working on Burger King, there was a stack on the table right. of about, I think, seven years' worth of redesigns that had not been able to make it to market. Yeah. And one of the issues that we had as well was ensuring that the franchisees were happy with, exactly. the, with the new identity. But it's so interesting that these big, giant, global redesigns have so much impact on so many people and that so many people have so much say Um, That makes it really, really politically challenging. Yeah, they absolutely do. I think we were at a very opportune, I mean, that moment in time where we had this interim CEO, he was bent on, you know, moving that airline forward and taking them out of bankruptcy in a positive place. As part of the the work that we were doing, we started by actually mapping out the the journey that a customer would have, pre-journey all the way through, you know, sort of leaving the airport and We were able to plot, we had a map that I think was probably 85 feet long, kind of all of the different ideas that people had. They weren't just our ideas, but they were other agency ideas. They were management's ideas, leadership's ideas, people in the field's ideas. And then we literally started to just said, what can we do now? What can we do in a year? What can we do two years from now? And Delta has still maintains that journey map, and they are working against it. So every time they do something, I love that they just did the baggage where you can, on your app, you can track your baggage. That was one of the ideas from 2007. 2007. Wow. So they have done an amazing job. And that's, I think, another reason why I just love working with them, because they actually, as a team, embraced everything that we were doing and and has taken it forward. So it's it's very... um, feel good about when you've been able to really have impact like that. Connie, you mentioned that when you were working at Anspec Grossman Portugal that you learned at that point how to manage a bad meeting. How do you how do you what kind of advice could you give to any of our listeners that are managing design projects or really any kind of creative endeavor where a client is involved and may not be as thrilled with the deliverable as we might be when we're making it? I think that when you're in a meeting where things are turning in a direction that you're not comfortable, the first thing is to just not get defensive and to just sit back and say, okay, so I really would like to know more about what we're doing 
from your perspective, isn't fulfilling the criteria? Do we need to go back and reevaluate that criteria? Do we need to develop some additional criteria? What is it that we are not hearing? And then I think that that often gives the client an opportunity to either take a deep breath (laughs) and also not be defensive and then give you important information that can help you move the project forward. Um, The other thing, and I've always heard Paula Scherer say this, sometimes when you're in a meeting, you just need to go through the meeting quicker. Like sometimes (laughs) people want to drag a meeting out and rehash and go back and talk about everything six times. Sometimes you just need to end the meeting and go write up your notes and then take it from there. Yeah, I really truly believe that if designers get defensive and double down on their work and try to persuade somebody or point somebody to feeling or try to get somebody to feel a certain way, that they will ultimately be unsuccessful. That people very, very rarely change their opinions because somebody's pointing out why their opinion is wrong. Correct. (laughs) It's also good when they say, did you try this Mm -hmm. or did you try that to go ahead and show them? Yeah. Um, Sometimes people are afraid if I show them, they might choose it. And that can happen. But usually if you've got your logic, you know, in sort of a very good place and you can walk them through, they can look at what they've asked you to do and they can say, oh, you're right. You're right. You're right. (laughs) Yeah, nothing can take the subjectivity out of evaluating design as much as a good strategy can. Yes, exactly. Um, Let's talk about Starbucks, one of my all-time favorite brands, a brand that I frequent frequently. Talk about how you evolved the Starbucks identity. And and I also want to talk to you about the launch strategy, because that was really unusual, the way way that you all brought out that new logo. So right when we started the Starbucks project, Gap had just had their debacle, if you will. They had tried to launch a, a new logo, and the world had sort of rebelled rebelled, and they <laughs> they actually went back and they said, okay, well, the world must be right. So that was very much on the minds of the folks at Starbucks when we started this project. And they, I think that's on the mind of everybody now in any kind of major redesign. Yeah, I wanted to make sure that we were thinking, even at the beginning of that project, about sort of where we were going and why we were going there. And the Starbucks project was actually very simple because the Starbucks team, they have a huge creative team, over 200, you know, designers. And I was a little, frankly, as I've said to other people, overwhelmed by, you know, the creativity and all of the amazing work that they do. And I kept thinking, what is it that Lippincott can bring to this assignment that they can't do themselves? They were really looking to understand sort of the potential of where they might go. And they had done a lot of work themselves. So we went into this room there. There were hundreds of thousands of, you know, sirens. I used to call her a mermaid, but I was corrected. It's a siren um, all around the room, but no way to make a decision about what's right to move forward. And this is always, always the thing that I find with many graphic design teams that don't focus on branding. They don't know how to make a decision about what's right and what's not right. And so they had all this stuff. They had no way of figuring out, like, if they had done the right thing or not done the right thing. So we started the project and we said, okay, let's just step back and let's think about how we might think about the world of the future for Starbucks. And we can 
We'll put three different teams. We had very little time. We had like a seven-week time frame that we were working with. Wow. It was very tight. And three different design directions were developed, and, and we called them worlds. And we had these big scrolls. One was really kind of an evolution of where they were. It was much more of a collage-type idea, a little bit more you could tell the story through your own collage mm-hmm. and you could make your own collage. We were trying to make things very social and very interactive. Um, a second direction was about kind of taking the siren and putting her at the center and saying, like, she's going to bring the world and curate the world for you. Um, obviously, they were going into China and other places at the time where people were really interested in this American brand and what that American brand might be bringing to them, even though they really didn't drink coffee, mostly drank tea. And then the last design was actually one that was more singular in nature and just a fresher, more modern approach where the siren played a big role, but literally we removed the word Starbucks and the siren kind of floated on her own. So we got rid of what they called the donut at the time and the word Starbucks coffee because obviously they were moving beyond coffee. And so those two elements played and then we added the brighter green and the black and decided that the role of the barista would be sort of this handwriting and then everything else would be very clean and modern. So it was more about the moment and more singular in its approach. And that's the one that felt the most different to them. And What they were trying to do, yes, the logo was part of the project and we redrew her and um, that was a lot of iterative kind of thinking around like how smiley should she be or not be and how much of the kind of idiosyncrasy in her face that existed in the woodcup should you keep. And this is all the craft and all the detail that I love. Maybe at the end of the day, you know, I think it's what made it very successful that we found exactly the right version of it. But she was the siren. We didn't come up with the siren. That was part of the program. Separating the two from each other was huge for them. They they had actually thought about it, and they were very nervous about it. And sure. we were able to reassure them. We were like, look, that siren is so recognizable that you don't need to have the word Starbucks. And so the program was pretty high level in the sense that uh, we did put some guidelines. Starbucks had, at that point in time, they had 30,000 stores around the world, had never had a guideline because it had always been managed by the creative director. But as they got bigger and as they were more global, they realized we actually have to document something um, for the first time. So that was just an interesting moment for them in time. And then we were able to bring what were like maybe 10 different color palettes together into one color palette. And we were really even the idea of what's decaf and and what's not. They were using different colors in different places to designate those things. And we were like, that's very confusing. So just helping them think through strategically kind of what those elements were in their program and what they communicated and um, how they could be more proprietary and how they use them. Were baristas trained on how to write the name on the cup. You you mentioned something that handwriting was part of this. Yes. Every moment that was possible to think about whatever you were doing, what that experience and how you might bring that experience to life was part of how they were thinking about things. So yes, the handwriting was a big part of the barista's role. You mentioned that people that don't work in branding don't always know how to make the right decision about branding challenges. 
Why? I think when you're a graphic designer and you're you're working with content a lot, you're thinking about how to bring that content to life in the best way possible for the content. It doesn't always result in a recognizable system of elements that come together as a cohesive whole that someone from the outside can understand as being representative of, oh, yeah, there are, that's a Starbucks thing. I see that Starbucks, or that's Levi's, or that's uh, Samsung, right? Um, and that is something that I think is a, a unique part of what a branding consultancy does, is help companies think about kind of the system of how those things come together. One of the things that impressed me most about the Starbucks redesign was how it was launched. The ads featured all four cups in the brand's visual history, from the first identity on a cup until the new one, and that telegraphically showed people that this was the same brand, just a different presentation. How involved were you in that? We weren't that involved, to be honest. We were very involved in helping them think through what not to do. So, for instance, we counseled them to really think about launching this under, we're doing this because the brand is evolving. This is our 40th anniversary. We're moving beyond coffee. Howard Schultz sent a letter to all of the top people in the rewards program at the time explaining the strategy of the company and why they were doing this. So it wasn't a cosmetic change. It was a change to support the business strategy moving forward. And that helped many, many people understand it. Now, that's not to say that there weren't some people who were very upset. There's always people who are upset well, when people you make don't a like brand change. change. Especially if they're attached <laughs> they don't to the like brand. It, you know, and I'm sure they heard about it. Typically, you hear about that for about a week, and then it's over, and you just move on and the world moves on and now they love it, right? Yeah. Like people are tattooing it on their arms. Let's talk about one more brand that you've worked on. You have created the brand for Samsung's streaming radio service, Milk. And the goal was to create a disruptive and personal offering that would challenge users' perception of the Samsung brand. And that line really fascinated me. So why would you want to challenge the perception as opposed to change the perception? So I think when Samsung, as a company, thinks about how it's evolving, they are constantly experimenting with, what if we did one of these? What if we did one of those? So the idea of Milk was to approach this idea of the streaming music in a completely different way. I think Samsung was, does look at this product development as a way of, you know, sort of experimenting. If something sticks, then it may move closer to the brand and become overbranded with Samsung, which is, I think, eventually what did happen mm -hmm. with Milk. Um, or it dies. And then it wasn't as connected to Samsung, and it doesn't really matter. It's gone away, right? So their strategy is very different in that way. And I think just who they are and what they do is really kind of broadening people's perception of, of who they are as a brand. It's not just about the phones. You wrote about this case study, and you stated that the strategy came through in every aspect of the service, from the algorithm and user experience to the symbol and the identity. And I was fascinated how 
brand consultancies now are actually getting involved in the actual algorithm. Can you talk a little bit about that? I'm not sure I actually understand the algorithm completely, but I think we're doing this all the time with our work these days. So understanding how someone's going to interact and then helping to magnify that through whatever the gesture or the experiences that the customer is having was really the objective. It's incredibly deep how far we're allowed to go now when redesigning a brand. It's true. Great responsibility. Do you have a worry that we have too much power? No. (laughs) (laughs) We want more. We want more. (laughs) Okay, then. Connie, the last question I want to ask you is about your house. You and your husband have a farm in upstate New York where (laughs) you go almost every weekend. And I understand you have a big garden, a big open kitchen, campfires with marshmallows, all these things I can envision. You also have motorcycles. So, Connie Birdsell, <laughs> what brand motorcycle do you ride? So, I actually ride now with my husband. So, I did have a Hyundai for a while that was my own. And then I finally said, I'm kind of over this trying to do it myself thing. Got a little nervous a couple times trying to get across the freeway and busy places where I stalled out and I was cars coming at me. And I was like, okay, I'm done with this. So, my husband has a Harley. And I do ride behind him. Are you all, all time. clad in leather? Are you oh, like a leather a, girl? I have the full leather outfit. Oh, I would give good only, money to see this. It's pretty funny. You have to wear the leathers only when you're going on a really long trip. But I did ride from our farm upstate all the way to the Indianapolis 500 with my husband. Nice. And that was fun. So you're a badass at heart. I can have a little of it. <laughs> Most people are like, really? I guess I like to try things, right? At least once. Connie Birdsell, thank you so much for being on Design Matters today. And thank you for making brands all over the world more beautiful and understandable. Thank you. To see Connie Birdsell's work, go to lipandcut.com. This is the 12th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Mark Dudlick. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes Store.